it surprised me to see how much OPM can do on its own. I think that OPM has significant flexibility to do a lot of the reorientation we're talking about, to do a lot of the culture change that we're talking about on its own. Welcome to Management Matters, a National Academy of Public Administration podcast where policy meets practice. I'm Terry Gurdon, president of the Academy. On this episode, I'll discuss the Academy's recently released report on the Office of Personnel Management with my guest, Peter Levine. Peter's an Academy Fellow, a Senior Fellow at the Institute for Defense Analyses, and he served on the study panel for this report. Peter, thanks so much for joining me today. It's great to be here. Thank you, Terry. Well, I want to recap the situation that provoked this report to give our listeners some context. And we all recall in 2018, the Trump administration published a plan and submitted a legislative proposal that would significantly realign federal human capital management. Um, And that plan would have moved OPM's policy functions to the Office of Management and Budget and all other functions to the General Services Administration. Now, the rationale they provided was that OPM was not structured or resourced to carry out its mission in a sustainable and secure manner. So in response to that legislative proposal, the National Defense Authorization Act for 2020 required the OPM director to contract directly with the National Academy of Public Administration to conduct this independent study that would address a series of questions surrounding OPM's functions and responsibilities and the challenges that OPM experiences in performing those functions. Before we dive into the particulars of the recommendation, as I mentioned, you were on the the panel of Academy Fellows that advised the study team and provided oversight for this report, but you've had a long career on the Hill and you served in DOD performing the duties of the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness. Before you started on this project, what was your assessment of OPM as an organization? Well, before I get to that, let me just say how impressed I was with the quality of the study team that worked on this project. I don't know that people know how NAPA works, but but we have we have a study team that really does the heavy lifting. They did a huge amount of work. They did it well, and they were always responsive to the issues raised by the panel. So they made us look good, and I want to just start by thanking them for that. As you noted, I first arrived on Capitol Hill almost 35 years ago and encompasses a lot of the history of OPM, most of the history of OPM. We've had some strong OPM directors in that time. So I think the the agency's reputation has gone up and down over the years. In the background, though, I think there's always been, in my experience, a concern about that the civil service system was too rigid and too bureaucratic to meet the government's personnel needs and that OPM was a part of that problem. So I think that's been a background even as OPM has performed very well under some circumstances. Well, and we talk about how important it is to have a fully functioning federal civil service, right? Because certainly every administration comes in with bold agendas. The Biden administration has got a very bold agenda. And if we don't have the right human talent in all of the different federal agencies, they're not going to be successful. GAO's latest report just released it at the beginning of this month, noted that federal talent management capabilities actually regressed over the last couple of years and that leadership commitment is a key issue. That point comes up in this report, doesn't it? It does. And I think it's it's the fundamental challenge that NAPA has identified in the past and that we were trying to, trying to come to grips with how OPM can play a constructive role in addressing that challenge. I think what we've seen in in recent years is an outcry from federal agencies and across the federal government that we need to address the talent problem. 
a disparate and unfocused, somewhat unfocused response, but a lot of experimentation coming from federal agencies and some good programs and some good policies coming out of individual agencies. But we need OPM to, to step up and play the role that it was designed to play in leading that process, in bringing in best practices and identifying lessons learned so that we can fuse the good things that are developed in one agency and spread them across the government. Well, you mentioned in your in your first comment about uh, having been around on the Hill kind of as long as OPM's been around, about 40 years now. What did the report identify as the key challenges that OPM faces and kind of how are they played out over its history? I can't tell you over, over the full history, but I think that major question for OPM is what is its role in the, in the federal human capital system? And, and we have a proposal for where it goes, but let me just describe how I see the problem before we talk about how the NAPA panel suggested resolving it. The basic problem is that the federal government is a federated system. Despite the fact that we have comprehensive civil service legislation, we do not have a single civil service system. We have multiple personnel systems run in different agencies. Even when they're running the standard personnel system, each one is running its own personnel system with its own processes, its own managers, and its own spin on how that works. So the question is, with close to 2 million federal civilian employees, how much can be done from a central agency and how much should be done from a central agency? That to me is a big question. And if you try to run too much and try to centralize too much, you risk playing into this problem of too bureaucratic and too rigid of a system. If you have to run every decision up to OPM, then the whole system won't work very well. Um, so the question is how you develop central leadership within a system that is ne necessarily decentralized. And we really highlighted that feature, I think, in our No Time to Wait reports from a couple of years ago, where we said, again, we didn't name it OPM, but we said a central personnel entity's first responsibility is to make sure that agencies have the human talent that they need to accomplish their mission. And that really a measure of success of the human capital system was mission effectiveness in the organization. Is that kind of the point you're getting to? Absolutely. That, that what OPM can do is to place itself as a problem solver, working with the agencies, with the chief human capital officers and others, and working with the data to identify where we're running into problems and then developing solutions, recognizing where agencies have developed unique approaches that can be helpful and communicating that information so that these solutions can be deployed elsewhere. That kind of constructive role of, I'm here to help rather than I'm here to impose requirements on you that, that, that you'd rather not have to live with, I think is a change of mindset for OPM that could be very constructive in the government. Well, that change of mindset brings up another question. I think it seems like over OPM's life cycle, there have been a number of myths that have evolved around what it can do, what it can't do, what it's supposed to do. And one of the tasks from Congress for this study was a review of the statutory and regulatory requirements for OPM to confirm that it was doing what it was supposed to do. So what did the study find there? Well, and our conclusion was that pretty much all of OPM's activities are driven, if not by statute, at least by executive order. That it's not that they're out there doing things that aren't within their ambit or that they're not supposed to be doing. And OPM sees this. They, they may get frustrated about being blamed for the way the system's working when they see they're just doing what Congress told them to do. I think there's some fairness to that. But I don't think the Congress told them how to do it in every case. I think there, there is more flexibility than, than we sometimes give, give credit for within the existing system to work issues and to work them differently and to solve problems. 
I think the theme of this report gets around imagining a new future for OPM. And so I want to circle back to kind of the the instigation of the report. The Trump administration ultimately withdrew its proposal to realign OPM and consolidate its functions. But this report does make some important recommendations about the future of OPM, specifically whether it should continue to exist as an independent entity and what that means, and whether its leadership responsibilities should actually be broader. So what is the bottom line here of the report about this vision for the future of OPM? Well, first, I think it's important to say that we did not find that the realignment of OPM was needed or would support the kind of vision we had for the future of human capital management in the federal government. I think that the conclusions that the study reached really run in the opposite direction, that an empowered OPM can become an effective leader on federal human capital issues, and that the federal government really needs to have a revitalized OPM with a new approach and a new vision so that it can elevate human capital as a strategic priority, as the new administration has said it wants to do. So what does it mean structurally or across agencies for OPM to be that independent leader of federal talent management? Well, so the first thing that I think we recommend, the important point of departure for the panel's recommendations is that OPM needs to take a more strategic view of human capital management, focusing proactively on policy, developing best practices, lessons learned, encouraging innovation, assisting agencies in achieving their personnel objectives. So what tools can we provide you to help you and make it easier for you to achieve your objectives? How can we help you navigate through what we all know can be a difficult system so that you can achieve things that you need to achieve? Consistent with that more strategic approach, we felt that OPM could delegate more of its transactional work to the the federal agencies, and in some cases can probably delegate greater authority even within the existing statutes, although some places more legislation would be needed, and then replace that transactional version of compliance with a more strategic risk-based approach to oversight, where instead of reviewing transaction by transaction, how an agency is doing and and approving or disapproving, uh, which risks being a, a bottleneck, conducting periodic reviews to ensure that agencies are acting in a manner consistent with the merit systems principles. So, that's sort of the vision of a different role for OPM, I think. It's a pretty radical change from kind of how OPM thinks about itself these days. Is that kind of culture change possible? I was a little bit concerned that one of the reactions from some of the career staff at OPM was, but we are a compliance organization and compliance is important. The panel, of course, agrees that compliance is important, but we just think that the way that OPM has viewed compliance in this narrow transactional way is not the best way to view it, either for the federal government or for OPM, that OPM could make a much larger contribution to the federal human capital system if it took a broader view. That's a really important distinction. And I think the report then lays out the steps that would be necessary to drive that culture change and change that viewpoint. And the first one that comes to my attention is the changes that the report recommends for the position of the OPM director and deputy. Can you tell us a little bit about the particulars there? We have a few things on the OPM director and deputy, and among them we have establishing qualification requirements for the the director. People who've known me over the years know that I've never been a particular fan, or I have, for a long time at least, I have got a long enough history, I can't say never. For a long time, I have not been a fan of a statutorily written 
qualification requirements because I believe they're too often ignored by, by both the executive and legislative branches. But I think that what the panel concluded on this issue was that those requirements can set a tone for the position and help the process of elevating the position and indicating how important we think it is. The same, I think, of the idea of not dual hatting the director of OPM and the deputy director of OMB for management, the same with some additional statutory requirements with regard to the deputy director. It's all about elevating OPM and making it clear how important we think this position is. So the person that inhabits that position is really going to have the task of driving culture change. And one of the things that the report talks about is the short tenure of recent OPM directors and how that's had an effect on the agency's morale and its ability to accomplish its mission. As you know, Terry, that's been a problem across the federal government. It's not a recent problem, although it's gotten worse in recent years. I always hear that the average tenure of a presidentially appointed Senate confirmed appointee is is something on the order of two years, two and a half years, uh, which really isn't as long as we need it to be. We need to have continuity in these positions. It's particularly problematic with a position like OPM director because it may be hard to fill and it may take some time to refill when when a leader leaves. It's, It's not just the short tenure, but it's the gaps in tenure where you have acting or performing the duties of as important as it is, and I've been both acting and performing the duties of in various positions myself, as important as those individuals are who are doing that, you don't have the same ability to lead from the top when you're only acting or only performing the duties of. So I think it's it's vitally important, and, and I know the president has a nominee. I assume she'll be confirmed. I think it's important that she stay long enough to make her mark and to carry through a reform program, that this can't be uh, and, and I'm sure that she views it this way, that this can't be a short-term commitment. It's got to be a long-term commitment to turn the organization around and, and make it what it should be. Right. And culture change in an organization of this size is a multi-year engagement. And so I think you're right to call for commitment over the, the long term, really, to sort of drive these changes. Let's drill down a little bit into the particulars, because we talked about this culture of compliance, and the report provides a number of recommendations that could help OPM sort of lift and shift its vision to a more strategic approach. You mentioned risk management. Tell us more about that and some of the other particular recommendations. So what we mean by a risk management approach to compliance is you don't have to review every transaction in order to ensure that an agency is complying with the spirit and the letter of of the federal statute. We deal with this in the acquisition system all the time. We used to complain that we had 100% compliance in, in audit of defense contractors, and we had audit backlogs that ran to years. And our audit agencies have developed over the years processes for dealing with that where they will audit samples. They will just determine sample sizes based on the degree of compliance and what they find. There are various steps that you can take so that you can review after the fact and determine whether you're on the right course rather than holding up the whole process and trying to do a 100% audit as you go forward. And I think the same principle that applies that we've tried to apply in the acquisition universe here can apply in the personnel universe too. You can sample, you can assess, and you can determine where you need to focus your attention based on where you see problems, and you can back off a little bit when you don't see problems. It allows you to make a better use of resources. And I think particularly because 
we as a panel are advocating for additional resources in some areas, it, it, I think it's helpful that we're saying you may be able to conserve some resources in, in some areas as well. We're not able to tell you exactly what the balance is and how much more or less funding will be needed overall, but at least we can see areas where you can be more efficient in your in your performance at the same time as you're producing better results. The report also talks about OPM's policy responsibility and how it really hasn't been staffed or resourced to execute that kind of role very effectively, but that it should be. The panel was concerned that a lot of what OPM calls policy is in fact compliance, and that mixing those two roles diminishes the ability to play the policy role. So if you have a staff that you call a policy staff, but it spends a lot of its time reviewing individual transactions, it becomes easy to focus on that transactional work and let the policy work slide. There is too much important work to be done in the policy area to let that happen. And so the panel did recommend that OPM should have a specific policy unit that focuses just on that. And and how big or how small that should, we didn't say, but we think that task, that function needs to have at least a core unit that's separated from, from these other tasks. And it seems to me that the report also sort of buttressed that policy shop with an expanded ability to do research and pilot projects and demonstration projects that would inform forward-looking and strategic policy. Absolutely. The panel placed a real emphasis on the need for better data for OPM decision-making and for decision-making in federal human capital generally. The study team really identified a deficiency in this area uh, where the existing data systems are not only not user-friendly for people who want to do individual transactions for federal employees who want to manage their own data and their own careers, they're not terribly user-friendly, but they also are not user-friendly for people who want to do research. They don't compile data in, in the most useful way. They don't make it as accessible as they could be. And as a result, OPM does not do as much with data as it could do, and it doesn't provide data to agencies in a way that's helpful for them to do all that they could do with data. So we believe there's a substantial room for improvement here. Well, and getting better at data, better data analytics and better data would help inform that strategic forward-looking policy shop as well. So it seems like you've got a a really nicely reinforcing set of recommendations there. Absolutely. The panel strongly believes in data-driven decision-making. That can be the kind of broad data that we get through OPM data systems, through government-wide data systems. But data can also be more strategic. It can be data that's provided by chief human capital officers, information about how things are going in their agencies and what they're doing. That's a different type of data, but also vitally important, which is why we recommended that the Chico Council be reinvigorated with the OPM director playing a much more aggressive role in managing that process and using it to learn and collect information. Much of what we've just been talking about is focused on the Chico's sort of as OPM's primary customer base. But you said something a minute ago that I want to circle back on, which is OPM has a customer base that is not yet federal civil servants, right? People who are interested in becoming part of the federal workforce. And so how are they dealing with that kind of customer? Well, I think that better IT systems would be extremely helpful, that the USA, the USA job system is not viewed as being particularly user-friendly. I hear over and over again that it discourages people from applying for federal jobs, and at a time when we need talent, we can't afford that. OPM has made some headway in developing approaches. The USA hire system, which is distinct from the USA job system, gets very good reviews. They can do good things in this space, but there's a lot more that needs to be done. 
And the report talks about the need to work with Congress for dedicated lines of funding for IT modernization. Yes, and that's that's going to be a hard stretch. Across the federal government, we have a long track record of failed IT projects. OPM is no better than other agencies in, in that regard, and perhaps worse than many. And I think that failures on past IT reinvention efforts have perhaps poisoned the well somewhat with Congress. So they're going to have to be convinced to put money up. But the panel's view is this is important. It's important that it be gotten right, and it can't be gotten right without funding. So we really hope that Congress will come back and help OPM on this. It's, it's vitally important to running a, a sound federal human capital system. So we just talked about it, how important it is for OPM to be collaborative with Congress. But this report requires Congress to rethink some things about how it interacts with OPM as well. Well, we suggest it. I don't think we require anything. I'm hesitant of of saying that that, that we've ever required anything of Congress. The report does recommend reinstituting civil service subcommittees on the uh, government oversight and governmental affairs committees of of the House and Senate. I remember when I started on Capitol Hill, there were civil service subcommittees and they held regular hearings. We had some very good chairmen over the years, both parties, Senator Akaka, Senator Voinovich, others, I know on the Senate side, but on the House side there were as well, who were very interested in human capital issues, paid a lot of attention to it. And that helped keep the focus on OPM and keep the pressure on OPM to do its job keep agencies understanding that the civil service system was centrally run. What we've seen with the, as uh, we went to new committees and, and, and civil service uh, issues were absorbed into full committees or into other subcommittees and became less important is we've seen a balkanization in Congress of how civil service issues are dealt with. So I was on the Armed Services Committee staff. We dealt with civil service issues all the time, but we dealt with them just for DOD. You see others who would deal with them just for FAA or just for the Department of Transportation or just for TSA, just for Homeland Security. And all of a sudden, instead of going to OPM and going through OPM and thinking about a civil service system as a whole, you've got Congress thinking about this piece of the civil service system or this piece of the civil service system. And as I've said, some of that experimentation, I think, is very good. And it's not that I would reverse it. It's that I think that for OPM to have a focus on that and to learn from it is an important thing because those lessons can be can be shared with other agencies. And so one of the things we said in the report was actually that OPM should take cognizance of the entire set of federal civilian employees, even those who are in separate accepted service positions or in positions that are exempted from the civil service rules, because it's important for OPM to understand how those alternative systems are working, because that's how they'll learn about what the best models are and where perhaps there are other changes that should be made for across the government. So do you think that that is something that Congress could act on? Do you think it'll it'll resonate with them with an importance for uh, elevating OPM and getting to a strategic human capital perspective? I've seen a lot of reports over the years from from many different sides, and I never believe that Congress is is going to act on all of any of them, that that all recommendations of any report will ever be enacted. Um, But I think there's some important ones in this, and I'm hopeful that Congress will act on a significant portion of it. I think it may be a stretch to think that Congress will reestablish subcommittees. That's a big issue for Congress is how many subcommittees you have, how many full committees. But I think that the reinvigorated OPM role and the importance of human capital generally is something that I expect and I hope will find some resonance on Capitol Hill. Well, that's encouraging. Now that the report is public, what surprised you most about the findings and the recommendations? About the findings and recommendations, I would say that 
it surprised me to see how much OPM can do on its own. I think that OPM has significant flexibility to do a lot of the reorientation we're talking about, to do a lot of the culture change that we're talking about on its own. I know that what OPM has done is is largely driven by statute, but I think if they look for flexibility, they will be able to find it. The other thing that surprised me isn't so much in the recommendations, it's the breadth of OPM's responsibilities. We haven't really talked about their responsibility for government-wide health care or retirement systems. The report didn't talk about them a lot either because they're really running very well. But when you realize how much the OPM umbrella covers, you realize how important it is as an agency and how important it is that it runs well. Yeah, that's a really important point, too, because you're right. We don't hear about the things that are going smoothly. Um, We only hear about where there are troubles. Just to sort of tie it up, this report began under the Trump administration, but was issued now at the beginning of the Biden administration. If all 23 recommendations got adopted, or even a, a majority of them, what would the federal human capital management mission look like? I think what we were envisioning was an OPM that sets the vision for federal human capital management rather than getting mired in details, that meets regularly with the Chico's to identify problem areas, develop best practices and lessons learned, that focuses on building a more agile personnel system that meets agency needs in a timely manner, that provides user-friendly services to agencies, employees through modern IT systems, and that serves as an effective hub for personnel data, providing quality data in a timely manner to serve as a base for sound decisions. That's all within reach. It's not going to be easy, but it's within reach. And OPM can do a lot of that on its own, and it can do even more with Congress's help. Well, Peter, certainly for me, that's an inspiring vision. I want to thank you and all of your fellow panel members for the support that they gave the Academy study team. I think this is an awesome report. We're going to look forward to people picking up the challenge of, of implementation, and we'll see how it goes from here. Let me just say what a privilege it was to work with NAPA and with my federal panelists. And NAPA is truly an outstanding organization and the study team that, that was put together for this project proves it. For our listeners, check back every Monday for a new podcast from the Academy. We'll be talking to Academy fellows each week about the challenges facing public administrators at every level of government as we try to make government work and work for all. Thanks for listening. 